Hello and welcome to episode 78 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics. I'm Peter Alegi and... I'm Peter Lim. Our guest today is Dr. David Gordon, Associate Professor at uh, Bowdoin College. He studied at the University of Cape Town before receiving his PhD from Princeton University. And his most recent book is entitled Invisible Agents, Spirits in a Central African History, published by Ohio University Press in 2012. And as well as that, he has recently edited with Shepard Kresh, Indigenous Knowledge and the Environment in Africa and North America, also by Ohio University Press. His, his first very interesting book, Nachatuti's Gift, Economy, Society and Environment in Central Africa, was published by the University of Wisconsin Press, and it was a finalist for the Herskovitz Award for the best book in African studies. Welcome, Dr. Gordon. Thank you. So how did you get first interested in the history of Zambia? My studies at first were at the University of Cape Town, and I was convinced that I was going to study South African history. I went to the US uh, uh, to do my PhD, and um, Zambia had always been an area of fascination for me as a South African. Fascination really because it was the, it it was the place where the liberation movement was, uh, was located. And uh, so I was always really fascinated and interested and engaged in, 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 in the history of, of, of Zambia. Of course, there was this long dialogue between South African histori historiography and the historiography of Zambia and the copper belt and the migrant labor system that emerged there. So I was conversant with that historiography as well. But um, my involvement in the history of Zambia came not directly through that connection, but actually through uh, uh, studying Zaire or what was known as Zaire then or it became Democratic Republic of Congo, because I read a few books about uh, Congo uh, as part of my graduate uh, school study. I, I read the books of Crawford Young, as well as uh, the books of, of, of Van Sina, and I became fascinated by the Congo. I became fascinated by transformations that occurred at independence. And really what happened is, as, as I was about to do my dissertation research, the first war in the Congo broke out. And uh, essentially my committee and uh, uh, the funders of the project said, you have to kind of work out how you're going to do this. So I looked at a border region, and the border with Zambia seemed perfect. I was engaged and uh, interested in Zambian history. So my first book was really a history of this border region of Zambia and Congo. And in fact, uh, while my second book has been more focused on Zambia, I still consider myself a historian of the entire region. And the, the project I've begun to work on is more focused on Congo once again. So that's a, a, a short uh, version of it. And uh, how does your earlier work on environmental history connect to this brand new fascinating book, Invisible Agents, on, on spirits? Well, in my first book, um, I was intent on looking at how uh, property regimes had changed over time, how people negotiated access to the land, to resources, and how they defined access to these resources, and how this changed with the emergence of colonialism and the post-colonial regimes as well. And uh, increasingly, as I did my research, I uh, discovered the importance of spiritual claims. I first discovered the importance of ancestral spirits and nature spirits in making those claims in the pre-colonial period, and indeed through to the colonial and post-colonial period, at least at the level of chiefs. 
these spirits were still invoked as an important uh, way in which um, claims to resources were negotiated. And then while doing my research, I also, my, my access to communities, or at least the, the friends that I made in the communities in this area, um, one of the main social activities that we would do would be to go to church. So uh, this was a new exposure. I wasn't a, a church-going person before. So, uh, you know, I was really exposed to this new uh, uh, way of defining community and defining status in community through, through the churches. So that's how I became more and more interested in, in it. And at the height of uh, um, this was during uh, President Frederick Chiluba's reign. Pentecostal discourse was prevalent throughout uh, Zambia at this time. And added to that, there was a coup, a coup that was really inspired by a, a sort of Pentecostal reborn ethic and an attempt to criticize Chiluba. Uh, the coup leader claimed that he was instructed by angels and uh, this religious or spiritual aspect seemed so central. So I became increasingly interested in that. And I became especially interested in how one transitions from this realm of nature spirits and ancestral spirits to this modern Christian nation. And that's the problem that I really took to my second book. And documenting this is really quite challenging. So I'm interested in discussing this idea of spirits as agents of history. Um, and can you tell us then a little bit about your sources and the challenges uh, that you as a scholar faced in documenting what is inherently intangible, unquantifiable, as you say, invisible. Um, you know, I'm reminded of how historians uh, uh, recently have started to deal more seriously with emotions. Mm -hmm. um, so can you shed some light on this uh, interesting aspect of the story? Right. Well, um, your comparison with uh, uh, how historians have tried to uh, deal with emotions recently is, um, is very pertinent because uh, one of the arguments that I make in the book is that uh, we have to understand spirits and spiritual beliefs as emotional, as feelings. Uh, the, the way we feel is how spirits come to us and uh, become felt and acted upon. But let me uh, get to your question, uh, which is how one documents this. Firstly, uh, I think you have to develop a, a, a sensitivity towards the people and the, uh, that you, you, you're studying. Um, if not for going to church, for feeling the power of faith, for feeling how spirits intervene in people's lives, both disrupt people's lives, cause chaos in people's lives, but also act as a calming influence in people's lives. If not for those influence, if, if, if not for those experiences, um, it, it would be difficult to try and um, uh, uh, understand the sources, to try and read the sources in new ways. Um, often one's looking at sources that have been examined before, if not field work or interviews, you, uh, there's, there's, there's lots of documentation from outsiders, uh, oral traditions, uh, but you're looking for new things um, and new ways of thinking about those sources. A great example are the fantastic oral traditions that come from Central Africa. And one of the real reasons I love studying this, this, this area because it has such rich oral uh, uh, tradition. Now, what those oral traditions are usually uh, used for by historians is to indicate the history of dynasties, the uh, um, uh, you know the, the the periodization of kingdoms, but really what I became interested in is that they almost all of them seem to be love stories, love stories or stories of revenge. Emotions are at the center of these stories. So by thinking about these oral traditions in new ways, 
um, you can begin to uh, uh, docu document new types of histories, types of histories that are far more sensitive to emotions, to personal dimensions, and to spirits as such. Well, obviously, the, uh, the issue is very complex, and you, you handle it in a very masterly way in the book. But uh, thinking uh, on a different tack, on the intersection between religion and politics uh, in Zambian history, or Central African history for that matter, how then do we factor in material incentive, or what Paul Gifford, writing, writing recently on David Odeyepo's Winner's Chapel, uh, which is based primarily in Nigeria, but active in 137 countries, including Central Africa, uh, Gifford refers to what he calls success in life, or what that uh, particular church itself refers to as victorious living. In other words, the emphasis is on success and victory in life. Um, how effective is this as a way of at least partially analysing such churches? And I'm reminded here that Gifford um, invokes Evans Pritchard on the seeming lack of the afterlife in some African uh, conceptions of the spiritual. Um, so to what extent is, can we put down the success of this appeal to the emotion or this spiritual appeal to uh, uh, problems in material life and the possibilities of actually uh, living a successful life? Um. Well, the rhetoric of, 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 of success uh, is crucial to uh, uh, the spread of Pentecostal churches. The promises of a successful life um, is, 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 is appealing. It's appealing to, to everyone. And churches act as an area for, for networking, for developing business connections. The, the urban Pentecostal churches in Nigeria, but in Zambia as well, are wealthy institutions in themselves, so it's a great place to make connections. I remember going to uh, a church in uh, Zambia, uh, it was called a business seminar, but essentially it was a prayer meeting run by a Nigerian uh, uh, preacher. And uh, I was the only one without a car. Most of them were Mercedes Benzers. Uh, many members of parliament were there. Uh, um, so uh, uh, these churches can be very prominent arenas for gaining access to resources. Um, but I, I, I'm not convinced that uh, such a materialist reading of, of Pentecostalism is at least the only reading or, or the best one. Success emerges because of spiritual uh, uh, welfare. And it's the spiritual focus that drives people to become involved in the, in, in the church. Material prosperity follows from, from that. But first, we've got to sort out our spiritual problems and the, the curses for, on, on our businesses and on ourselves and um, uh, what Pentecostalism can do. That's what uh, a membership of a, of a powerful church can, uh, can do. So um, Paul Gifford is, is often ambivalent about the success of these churches in actually promoting a successful life for their members. And uh, um, I think his scholarship is wonderful, and I owe great debt to his scholarship in my work. But um, there is an element of these Pentecostal There's an element of a, a false consciousness argument in some of his uh, uh, work, uh, an element that people are deluded by this rhetoric of success. I think the counter to that is that in the dire situation find themselves in, 
sometimes dire, sometimes not so dire, given my earlier example. But uh, 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 the church provides excellent opportunities for spiritual welfare and for advancing oneself materially uh, compared to other avenues that are open to people. Um, I just want to give a quick caveat. Pentecostalism gains a great attention today. Uh, and indeed, it's the, it's, it's the final chapter of, of my book. But I think our studies of spirituality in Africa can be overshadowed by the most recent uh, articulation of these uh, uh, spiritual uh, formations. Yes, in that chapter entitled A Nation Reborn, you, you write very well on the shifting uh, political constellations as well as the uh, uh, the growth of the Pentecostal churches and uh, it's just staying or lingering for a moment on this question of the relation between politics, religion and perhaps economics. You write that because earlier you were making the point that first the, uh, the church had to deliver and gain spiritual support and, uh, and so there's obviously something happening in, on the intellectual field, in the, in the uh, inner life of people, in the emotions. Uh, but then linking that to, to the external world, you write that, quote, in privatizing social services, and here you're talking in the text about uh, such spheres as health and education. So in privatizing social services provided previously by the Zambian state, uh, the new churches fueled neoliberal transformations, uh, unquote. And, and you also detail the strong international links to South Africa, the US, the UK, etc. So in a way, uh, it's a very uh, uh, complex slate, perhaps not always a very clean slate or a direct slate, or, or is it what we're really talking about in spirits? Is this perhaps not the, uh, what Ve Allah Weber, the spirit of capitalism? Mm -hmm. um, uh, there's a lot there in, in, in that question. I, I certainly think uh, uh, Pentecostal spirits are part of the neoliberal world, part of that in this socio-political context, and uh, they have been incredibly successful in uh, uh, funding uh, clinics, health services, connecting with richer, with wealthier churches uh, uh, in the US and in other parts of Africa, connecting with spiritually gifted politicians uh, 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 across the continent. Um, and, and, and in that sense, it's part of globalization as well. And, and the argument has been made uh, that uh, this is a new kind of uh, Protestant ethic. Um, there's a slight difference, and I think Gifford points it out, and others have pointed, and as the Komarovs pointed out as well, um, uh, I think the Pentecostal ethic, as opposed to the uh, Protestant ethic, is not uh, uh, as concerned with the afterlife. Um, it's not as concerned for uh, uh, with saving for the afterlife with with uh, 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 but rather um, uh, 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 spending here and now to demonstrate this new type of wealth and success that one has attained in this world so um, I'm not convinced that it's a, a, a Protestant ethic in quite the same way as Weber described it I liked your parallels uh, between the Watchtower movement of the 30s and, and contemporary Pentecostals later in the book that we were just discussing. Um, and I'm also interested in sort of 
these competing ways of looking at spirituality and religions or the materialist reading versus um, your particular take. And, and it struck me that, of course, the 30s, the time of the global depression, uh, a particularly hard time for people living uh, under the, the effects of colonial capitalism. And of course, today we've got this unfettered sort of neoliberal global capitalist regime um, that is impacting all of our lives. And these two different time periods, you know, they both generated uh, and continue to generate tremendous uncertainty and insecurity and suffering. So I'm wondering, you know, how far can these particular shocks in the 30s and perhaps, uh, you know, post-structural adjustment in, um, in Central Africa can go towards explaining why African spiritual activity gained such prominence um, and played out in this particular way at this specific historical moment that I was referring to, the 30s and, and at present, and not others? Um, I think uh, spiritual ideas engage with socioeconomic uh, uh, realities and experiences. If they don't engage with those experiences, if they don't speak to those experiences, if they don't make sense of those experiences, they don't have any hold on people. Um, so... Uh, to the extent that Watchtower was able to explain what was going on to people, to workers on the Copper Belt in the 1930s, explain why they weren't getting paid properly, explain that evil was inherent in colonialism, to the ex and, and to the extent that that corresponded to their social re uh, uh, relations, it came to, to uh, uh, it, it became a significant movement. Um, the same could be applied to Pentecostalism in the, uh, um, uh, at the end of the 20th century. The extent to which Pente Pentecostalism gave opportunities, gave promises for, uh, uh, for success uh, um, in, in a world where success was so transitory and, and capricious, the extent to which that occurred allowed uh, uh, Pentecostalism to um, gain influence and importance. So. Um, Yes, uh, spiritual ideas are always engaging with, I suppose, what we call material realities or social realities. Um, they are not determined by them, uh, but they have to speak to them. They have to engage by them. With, uh, they have to engage with them. So. One of the ways of engaging, of course, uh, and relating uh, the spiritual is through the intellectual matrix, through through speaking and writing and uh, so I'd, I'd just like here to explore a little the intellectual matrix and particularly of post-colonial Zambia. Um, you, ha you have a nice juxtaposition in one chapter where you, you quote uh, Kaunda's uh, Christian humanism uh, and then the Pentecostals who are both speaking to the beginning of a new regime, a new administration. Um, and yet uh, there's a lot of... Uh, complex uh, connections going on here because Kaunda himself is relating to the established church. He is uh, defining uh, his humanism as Christian humanism, um, but also with the Pentecostals as well. I'm wondering how adequately either of them really filled the vacuum in people's intellectual or cultural lives, whether you call it culture or whether you call it the intellect people are talking people are discussing people are thinking people are expressing themselves in other words what free play of ideas is really available in most people's lives giving the nature of the media tv and press and here of course there might be a vast difference between say the rural areas where you are working uh, in your early work or indeed in this current book you i know you have a lot of work in northern zambia and and say uh, urban 
Zambia, the copper belt, Lusaka. So, um, in other words, what I'm getting at in my own recent work on religion and politics in South Africa at the turn of the century, uh, it struck me the paucity of debate that was going on uh, in the in the uh, in publishers in in the newspapers about uh, about the secular world, and so in some ways uh, the terrain does not seem either balanced or free in that regard. So th there seems to be a certain congruity between both Coanda's Christian humanism or humanism and the Pentecostals. Uh, so, so what do you think about that, that really the terrain is dominated by the spiritual, in fact, despite the attempts of, of, uh, of to introduce a more scientific spin? Mm. Um. I mean, it's a long time since I've been to Zambia, 1989, but I remember in my hotel room the, the uh -huh. water, water went off at 6 p.m. and the only book there was Gideon's Bible. Um, right. And so there, there was this poverty of ideas that, that's, right. that, that uh, struck me. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, you know, I, I think uh, at times during Kaunda's regime, the religious sphere was the only one in which people could, could articulate uh, 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 different views, right. uh, in which there was some freedom. The national newspaper, um, the National Mirror, was the most became the most prominent organ for uh, oppositional discourse. Um, so uh, your 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 question is, on the one hand, I suppose, if uh, was it not the restriction of these opportunities for open discourse that contributed to the religious character of that discourse? I think what happened with with Christian humanism and with Kaunda's humanism is that there was a Kaunda was a Christian and was influenced by Christian ideas and his father was a missionary. Uh, he grew up very close to the mission churches, but by the 1980s, humanism was being taken in, in a, a scientific socialist direction. And uh, there were few heavyweight intellectuals in UNIP who were really pushing humanism in this direction. And this occurred at the same time as a very popular uh, uh, Catholic Archbishop, Archbishop Melingo, uh, was recalled to the Vatican uh, because of his uh, popular healing sessions that the Vatican didn't uh, uh, really agree with. Um, the government, so the Zambian government, acquiesced in Bishop Melingo going back to the Vatican, and many Zambians perceived this as a betrayal. They saw these, they saw the scientific socialist elements of humanism being pushed, as well as Bishop Melingo. Um, being uh, expelled as all one of the one and the same, an effort by government to move in a more a secular direction, a direction that wasn't just wasn't a tolerant sec secularism, but was a type of secularism that would repress uh, spiritual life. Um, and yes, it was precisely the spiritual life did offer the only opportunity for a more open discourse at the time. Uh, a, a more op open political discourse, a more open religious discourse. So, so this was perceived increasingly as a as a threat. It happened at the same time as as Pentecostalist Pentecostal ideas were disseminating, becoming more popular. And here the media fits in again because it's the same time as uh, uh, television uh, broadcasts and radio broad Pentecostal radio broadcasts are becoming more common. So the discourse, the Pentecostal discourses, are spreading across at this time, and they are combating these um, intolerant secular attitudes found within uh, 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 humanism. These are 
issues spawn across many different African nations and different periods of history, but they play out in particular ways because of the particular histories of these countries. So I think one has to be attuned to specific contexts as well as uh, broader currents when thinking about the way the relationship between uh, governmental so-called secular ideologies and uh, spiritual uh, uh, beliefs and ideas. Does that... Uh, yes, yes. Yeah. I was also wondering here about how it played out in different parts of the country, say, comparing the rural-urban appeal of the Pentecostals, say, in, from Lusaka, the Copper Belt, and then the rural areas. Right. Did you see a uniformity in these discourses, or were there variations? I mean, was Calendar, I mean, Calendar had his own power base, of course, but I, I'm wondering, uh, for instance, uh, there would oh, clearly there would be less uh, pronounced access to television in the far rural areas. Uh, right. Right. And so uh, maybe the oral orality is more important there, and perhaps linking to earlier uh, worldviews of, of the spirit world. Perhaps, uh, you know, uh, there are different uh, churches that take hold in different rural areas and uh, become popular. Um, you know, in Luapula, where I did my first research, uh, uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses and Seventh-day Adventists were particularly popular. On the Bemba Plateau, uh, Catholics are, 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 are more important in the United Ch in the Protestant uh, churches. Um, and this leads to sort of different approaches to media, different approaches, firstly, to the scripture, to the Bible, how important the Bible is. So, you know, often when I went around Luapula uh, and I would ask about early stories and early histories, people would want to take out the Bible and read the Bible and, you know, uh, refer to that as the authority. Um, and even if literacy was, was low, they generally... Uh, literate people in the communities and they are leaders of the church of, of Bible reading sessions that happen or that surround uh, church meetings. Um, so biblical narratives uh, even in the rural areas become very important. Um, it doesn't, you know, if a Pentecostal church wants to go on a crusade in a rural area and they mobilize a charismatic uh, preacher, um, he or she can do a great deal to mobilize followings in various rural areas um, and, and to bring the message in, in rural areas. So again, it's, it's, it's very dynamic and it, it, it defies a simple rural-urban uh, uh, divide in part because people move back and forth so much. Yes, yes. Uh, you know, uh, so yeah, um, I will say one thing, you know, in the urban areas, uh, uh, some of the most successful churches um, uh, attach themselves to uh, uh, elite groups, uh, elite groups, say, uh, coming out of the university, groups of businessmen. They establish excellent schools. They develop land holdings. Some of the best, they own some of the best land across the capital and in the copper belt. So they become powerful and wealthy institutions, urban institutions. Um, and those have a very different character to uh, rural churches. Um, yeah. Maybe this is a good point to start bringing our conversation uh, to a close uh, because there's so, there's so much that is interesting here and quite bold, this assessment of, of, of spirits and its collect collection to 
capitalism and politics and so on. It, it, it reminds me of all this new work being done in Central African history. Uh, there's a lot being published, uh, uh, Kalusa on medical discourse and missionary medicine and on uh, 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 chiefs, uh, Larmer on opposition, Hugh McMillan on the ANC in exile, the, uh, uh, cultural history. Uh, I have a graduate student, Tigabo Chipande, in Lusaka right now and on the Copper Belt doing the first academic history of football or soccer uh, in colonial and post-colonial Zambia. Uh, where is all of this going? Um, well, you know, Zambia was uh, the site of some of the most interesting uh, historical and, and ethnographic anthropological research Yes. Uh, from the 1930s, uh, uh, really, first with the work of Audrey Richards uh, mm. and then with the uh, Rhodes Livingston Institute that was first headed by uh, Godfrey Wilson and some of the real luminaries, Max Gluckman, uh, Victor Turner, uh, uh, Mary Douglas, um, uh, uh, to name just a few of them, uh, uh, were uh, very involved in, 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 in Zambian studies. And they left such a fantastic uh, a base um, uh, for future scholars to work from and to investigate. And um, these investigations during the 70s and 80s, I feel um, uh, with the influence especially of structural Marxism, with the rhetoric of the liberation struggle, which was, uh, although it was a liberation struggle, it was restrictive in some ways because scholarship only discussed certain issues and it was really focused on the working class and on structural conditions that contributed to underdevelopment and that kind of those kinds of ideas in a sense with the end of that meta-narrative with the end of that materialist meta-narrative i think scholars can get back to some of the fascinating ways in which the Rhodes and livingston anthropologists were thinking about change cultural change thinking about uh, um, uh, 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 the dynamic engagement of these societies with modernity, which is the ultimate subject, I think, uh, of my of, of, of my work and my and my fascination with with Zambia. So th this new decade or so, um, along with the opening of Zambian politics, has been there's also been an opening of Zambian scholarship, um, and I must also credit here uh, the the very enterprising work that Zambian archivists have done. In making accessible new new collections, um, collections and not uh, principally from the post-colonial period, that allow us to investigate post the history of post-colonial politics in a way that just was not is rarely available uh, in many other African nations. So um, we have an excellent set of archives, committed uh, committed archivists, a great uh, base of scholarship from which to work. So all that was really required were some enterprising historians to go out there and do this work. And that, this, thankfully, because of many of the names, you've, including many of the names that you've mentioned, this thankfully has happened in the last uh, uh, decade or so. And I think we're seeing the fruits of that at the moment. I think there are many more challenges. Uh, 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 and this is the direction I'd like the, uh, to see uh, Zambian scholarship go. I think that the, the many more challenges involve seeing Zambia as part of a uh, both a Central African and a Southern African region. Um, I'm most interested in seeing it as part of a Central African region. In all my work, I go back to an earlier period where Zambia is more tied with a Luba and Lunda uh, uh, diaspora and uh, kingdom. And, 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 and in a sense, I'm really interested in following that history, that Central African 
history. It, it's very challenging for the historian in part because we have to learn other European languages. We have to work in French and in, in Portuguese, which is not that common. Uh, but this, but but again, there are new archives op opening up. There are new opportunities to link with new with other scholarly traditions and really engage in a dynamic new uh, historiography. Well, some very uh, perceptive tips there for young scholars who are listening. So, uh, David Gordon, thank you very, very much for talking to Africa, past and present. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Africa, past and present is a co-production of Matrix, the Center for Digital Humanities and Social Sciences, and the Department of History at Michigan State University. Technical assistance is provided by the Matrix Digital Media Lab. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, visit our website at afropod.aodl.org. The podcast is also available on iTunes. You can also send us email at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening.